0: I will do a short little intro to what we'll be discussing today. If you clicked on this, you already know what it is. And that is a book discussion again on the book titled Range by David Epstein. He's a journalist. He works currently for ProPublica. He's written two other books, or this is the first or second book he's written. His first book was The Sports Gene, which was really widely popular. And I believe there's a TED talk on it, if you're curious. But As I said, this is a second book, and the subtitle of this book, which I think is incredibly fitting, but it explores why generalists succeed in a specialized world, and this is something that has been really near and dear to my heart as a topic um, ever since I saw that it was coming out because I've always been enamored by the idea of being as general as possible um, within your range of interests, because I think all of us tend to undercut our interests and say, "Well," My job is X, but I have all these other interests. And you say, well, they don't matter, right? They don't provide useful skills that I can pull into my professional life or whatever you call your career, right? And so for me, the idea that your interests do matter and do count and do shape what you bring to the thing you get paid for, basically. And the, we'll just start with the title of the first chapter really quick and then I'll let you um jump in Joe because I think this leads into that because what people are in the early probably 90s or so everyone started getting into the 10,000 hour rule and if you want to make the next Tiger Woods or if you want to have the next genius and whatever you want your child to start in that field typically you see this in sports and you see this as music um, you start your child as early as possible so that they get their ten thousand hours done sooner than later and all of the data shows that that is not a surefire way to success and so this is the cult of the head start is the name of that chapter
1: Well that's interesting because i i would have
0: a surefire way
1: to success so that certainly doesn't seem unreasonable to me i mean the idea that just because you started early means you will succeed in the long run. I don't buy that. It, I don't buy that because people have a certain amount of innate talent. They have a certain amount of interest in the thing. And if I don't have any interest in playing the violin, but you're making you play the violin when I'm young, uh, <laughs> then what makes you think that I'll succeed, I'll get some amount of talent. Out of this simple practice, but the lack of passion to me uh is a major obstacle. That is a major obstacle. So that—that's what I take away from it. I mean, obviously there's more to
0: it than that, but that piece, yeah. Is- so one of the core things about this is that in most of the research or in the categories that people tend to study this kinds of effects is within like chess and golf and music playing right and the reason this doesn't map very well into like other fields in reality is that within those really structured games or sports you have a very clear delineation of where the skill gaps are where you can understand how to achieve a certain level of skill right and so one of the ideas here is called like learning environments and so it's basically the the difference in learning environment meaning like is it kind or is it wicked as the author describes it and so a wicked environment is something where some of your information is hidden and whereas feedback isn't is either isn't or may be delayed and may be infrequent if not a non-existent so the wicked environment remains like it re- can reinforce wrong types of behavior because you don't have all the information to you, and so this is
1: where you're problem. So meaning that um that you're you're doing one thing or the other, and it's actually clear to you what the right or wrong need to do. it. Yes, because you're not getting enough positive or even negative reinforcement on the yep. particular issue. That's really interesting to me because that plays out with. <laughs> with attachment styles, so you can have some who just has a disorganized attachment style, which is just about the worst you can possibly imagine. Which is that the rule, it's not just that, um, you did get the attention from your parents, uh, their, the comfort and the acknowledgement of your existence, or that you got too much of it and now suddenly you're kind of dependent or whatever it may be, right? It's not just one or the other of these extremes, it's that a, it's totally random. And so it leaves this kid just lost as to what they're supposed to be doing. And you can imagine what kind of adult that produces. So it's immensely self-conscious. Uh, right. Wondering all the time whether or not what they're doing is the right thing. And uh, desperate for solid ground,
0: for a foundation... They can act from, uh, which, they, <laughs> and you can, and you can imagine too, right? Say you take this to the, not the extreme, but you, you put a child into a highly structured sport like chess, for example, and they're really, they're decent at it. Maybe they're not genius level, right? They're not going to be world one, rank one grandmaster, but you put them in that. And then you think that that is going to put your child up for success going forward. When in reality, much of the world, like much of what being successful in the world means handling unknowns or known unknowns, you know, like you, you can do something, but you're not sure how things are going to play out. So you have to just pick a, a choice and go for it. Whereas when you're playing in a highly structured rule set, you can be lulled into a sense of security of being like, well, I know how this plays out. But when you're, so when you pull that plug and right, and you make them stop doing that thing, because... Not everyone's gonna make a career on these highly structured forts. You you don't give them the proper regular tools to be able to deal with these, these like patterns of recognition that in the real world you're just not always gonna have either positive feedback or really any feedback. Um and it kind of goes on to like playing on some of the keyword ideas. One of them is, I'm sure you know this since you've done developmental psych, but he brings up the idea of chunking. Is like that's why people who do really well in chess they can leverage the idea of chunking because the difference between an amateur player and like a grandmaster player is they've seen so many different types of boards that they can do kind of like that high level extrapolation that like a super can do to see like, well, in this, you know, setup of, of pieces, here's like the possible moves that person can make. And our brains can do those calculations just over time by just repetition. Whereas like a grand ma- or amateur person just doesn't have that, you know, working tool set. And so that's why when you start doing anything, you're basically creating that real life chunking set as whatever domain you decide to choose. If you start to play a video game at a high level, you start chunking different things about, you know, either map placements or like how enemies place themselves in a video game so that you can be more proficient than the enemy. Or if you're, you know, getting really good at school, like what do you do to study that works for you? You get really good at doing the things that help you to study better.
1: Right. And That's so it's true. like you
0: take your super simple Is it
1: is, uh, is what's going on is that here you're on chessboard this chessboard, um, this person makes this move and this move with this board is the way that it looks. There are, uh, five different potential ways to make a move or here. It's like, oh, I've seen this before. I recognize that this thing doesn't produce in some sense, five different moves, it produces. One move that breaks down five different ways. So what chunking is, is taking uh, in some sense information and categorizing it into an easily, uh, unzippable package that you can handle. So decrease, the cognitive load that happens. So you, what do you, what do you have yeah. in some sense in real life is with expertise is you're actually working way less hard because you've seen it all before. You, you've done this, you yep. understand, mastered it. You could predict where things go. He played enough people that you know that you know, on average, most people do this thing. Uh, but you know, I mean so often you get a crazy person like this, but even the implicit information will tell you, yeah, uh, he's not one of the crazy ones.
0: And then, yeah. you can then <laughs> where he's thinking, right? So yeah, you can play a game in an interesting way. I think you're you're totally spot on and and I took a tangent in when I wrote about this. So for everyone, I put this in the description, but I did do a really deep dive. Um breakdown or what I call blueprint of this entire book, chapter by chapter. Um, so feel free to go follow along or jump into any chapter you like. I'm not gonna, we're probably not gonna cover everything in an hour here, but we'll get as much as we can get done. But one of the things I I tangented into from this idea of chunking is in chess. So the the author breaks this down is chess or learning how to be good at chess is a tactic level thing. So you can look you can just know positions on a board and have a pretty good understanding of how to win based on just how pieces are laid out the, with that broader knowledge. Like if you have just a huge encyclopedic memory of all the pieces available to you, then you can be really good at it. But the problem with chess is that, or problem with looking at things at only a tactical level is you don't understand like the, the overarching goal, which if you zoom out, what is it? You know, it's tactics is like the low level stuff. Strategy is the high level stuff. And so what humans are really good at is strategy thinking big picture being able to look at everything going on and being able to adapt when things don't match the current tactic you are using as someone from the military you'll respect this a lot um and so one of the cool things that we've been seeing within like the ai development of like chess games or gaming with ai is there's a breed like a a offshoot of instead of just using specific like only ais that play against humans to win that's pretty easy but What they've been starting to do is they have humans and ai working together against each other so you have you combine the best of both worlds the the you get the tactics from the computer because the computer can run the simulations but then you have the humans picking how to like execute on that strategy like the overarching strategy to win more effectively and i think that is where the magic of all the stuff is right like everyone is worried about ai taking over but i think the magic is Leveraging the AI so humans can execute more effectively. Yeah. I had,
1: I had thought about this because it just bothered crazy. So if you can, as is typical of our live stream at this point, go off on a tangent inspired by the particulars of the thing that we're reading (laughs) and the particular, the, the inspiration here is coming from talking about tech. and the thing that's really scared me about AI something that I learned from biology. So in evolution, you have is you have a species and the species is, you know, migrating a little north and that's where the food is. And one half goes to the right side of this bond range. And the other half goes to the left side of this bond range. Well, uh, they go to those different places and the environments are slightly different and they're separated by this range. So they won't see each other for long enough time that, well, the range separates them, meaning that they can't, uh, uh, have sex interact. Right. Right. They can't reproduce with each other. So the genes stop mixing, right? On one side, you have one gene pool and the other side, you have another gene pool. And they still only mix with each other and they don't mix They don't cross pollinate. And then, uh, over a sufficient amount of time, they start to deviate in the direction of the environment that they're in, and that's called speciation, which is the creation of a new species, but it's not just the creation of a new species, it's the differentiation of an old species into, in some sense, two new species. Now, does, yeah, I it doesn't that continues forward to one that deviates off or or they have to go in different directions or whatever. Uh, but let's say they, they are reintroduced into an area. So you have right side of mountain and left side of mountain, and now they're so differentiated that if they tried to reproduce, they couldn't, right. But now they both are relying on the same resources, but they can't reproduce. So there's no means of unifying these groups at a fundamental level, but they do need the same resources. So all that's left for them is competition. Mm-hmm. And so they duke it out. And you don't even need to go so far that you can reduce Human beings in competition with Neanderthals and we could, yeah, right. <laughs> and we still killed all of them. <laughs> so you don't even have to go that far. Yeah. I mean, been- AI is this potential for us to go, oh, let's create a new species. That's significantly different from us today. I mean, how do you reproduce with AI? That's a confusing thing. Where it can, where we will be inevitably in competition with these things and we will die. Yeah. A the, the networks, not the networks, the, the wiring, the simple wiring that AI operate on compared to what we operate on, which are um, neurons and axons and this is a thousand times faster. Okay. A thousand back times faster. I didn't realize how fast that it was. That if we could make a functionally equivalent artificial intelligence, right. In that it has all the same system, whatever, but the only difference, as if that would be the only, the only <laughs> difference is, is the speed at which it can transfer information exists, then. For every year that we spend on a problem, it spends a thousand. Yes. Okay. So yeah. as a multiplication factor, <laughs> compete with that thing. Because if the competition we're in comes to blows and we have one year to come up with a strategy to kill all the AI, they have had a thousand years to think about how to kill us and we lose. Every single time that, that this is an argument that Sam Harrison made. This is not even a yeah. complicated, right? The the fact of this argument, simplicity
0: is part of what gives it its weight. It's, oh man. There's yeah. That follows.
1: It's yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, and this is why I personally think that instead of aiming to do something where an AI is like semi-sentient or, you know. General intelligence, right? AGI is one of the, the buzzwords in this. I, I don't, I don't personally think that is as interesting or important to do, because my thinking is that machines and systems should always be created in service of helping humanity do what they're good at, not the other way around. And that means... ail the alternative. With, yeah,
1: <laughs> it, that, I wanted to get to exactly what the the this thing was this the book was inspiring uh in me to express, which is <laughs> alternative yeah. is what like I encephalization. So oh, okay, one point five million years ago, for reasons that are kind of up in the air or, or are in debate, some people say um what they call um mimetic driving, which is the and that, uh, our memes, yeah, which are simple ideas, bits of information ideas. Everybody knows the word meme from the internet, but that word meme, the idea of a meme on Facebook is the consequence of Dawkins in 74. So I can mean, have a meme being an analog to a gene, but in culture. So you have the, you have the building blocks of culture simple ideas that can interact with each other and evolve right and uh, a meme can evolve at such a rate and such degree that it ends up directing the genes of a person or the, the species yeah right so So now the ideas start to select for the people. They start to determine Mm -hmm. who to live and die and how they, they operate in some weird way. And this is, this is evident in things like, uh, so this is considered one of the reasons why our cortex might have expanded is that our ideas in some sense start to select for hardware that could house and proliferate our ideas. And that's the right, So, Oh, wow. There's one idea. Uh, another idea is, sim- is more simply, <laughs> I started with the most complicated one first. But <laughs> not natural. The, the other one, the other one ideas are things like uh, nutrition. So Richard Reagan talked about, now this is a mean fire. And that the idea that you could cook uh, decreases the amount of energy you have to put into ch- like, like chewing and, and digesting. and then- Externalized digestion. Right. So all that kind of pushed up into the brain, used for something else. Um, which made it down the, none of these are mutually exclusive. You could, you could have the meme of cooking, or So meme is a mimicable thing. That's how it transfers from one verse to another. My suspicion is that what we did when we were very, very old, I mean, pre like when writing didn't exist, this is a world history, this is 70 plus thousand years ago, actually probably more, um, was that we saw wildfires. So there are aborigines in Australia who still do this. They see wildfires, thing goes through, um, they mimic nature. They may even personify nature, then you have mother nature. And now that she's a human, you can learn from her in the same way you learn from humans. Mimic her in the same way that you're using. Gotcha. She sets fires to cook animals. I can set a fire to cook an as if she's a role model teaching you that you can do this thing. Uh, you have that as an idea. It's a functional idea. Other people mimic that idea. And that, that thing, because the idea is a, Functional idea. I mean, it increases the likelihood of your survival and perpetuation. Um, it proliferates very fast through uh, a culture, but it also gets settled into the biology. So, because um, because it's useful, because it's a it, it's a it has impact on your biology. It affects how you digest and so on. Um, it is so constant over so long a time, like. The, The idea that we can cook is constant for so long that the cookedness of our food becomes a reliable feature of our environment such that we adapt to it to the same degree we would adapt to the weather or any other consistent thing. And so today, because an idea occurred way back 100,000 years ago, If I eat raw food, I'll be sick. Right. So the ideas plus the functionality of those ideas are altering my DNA. Right. But that produced, hypothetically, the massive explosion of our neocortex about 1.5 million years ago. Wow, this thing evolved fast. And suddenly we can hold all these abstract ideas, play with these things, we can do all this interesting stuff. What I would like to see from AI is not the splitting off of some new species that we're now competition with because we're yeah. we do that. Homo automata. <laughs> but instead our our AI become a new neocortex, that it's the next part of our brain stacked on the symbiotic relationship. Yes, is what I would aim for, of expanding ourselves, not
0: replacing ourselves. You have to be a bad idea. So I think this all plays into what you're just saying. One of the last points that I, I highlight in the chapter one that is is the idea of cognitive entrenchment. I'm not sure if you've heard of this before, but I th- I think it's kind of rampant right now, just across the board, I'm sure. As I said, then, who's listening has many, many ideas of different ways someone may be entrenched. Um, and at a high level, it's an act of an experienced group becoming rigid under pressure and regressing to what they know best. And I'm sure, again, you can find many examples of this throughout science and different industries where people panic when under any sort of external pressure or, or deadlines or whatever it is, instead of doing the thing that is innovative or what they think is right, they stop and panic and they go back and huddle, right? They turtle, basically. And the, the point, point being is that majority of us should not do that, especially if you're looking to grow and improve your range so that you don't stagnate right and like again if we're thinking about this in the ai sense right the ai can it can rapidly iterate and so like what you're saying is what is it what is a, like reproducing as an ai look like currently in the coding world what you do is called forking code so it's tell hey, you there's already a, a group of code you just take that code and you fork it which means you copy everything but you don't change anything from the original code base so whatever, uh, so uh, this sounds like cloning, not like reproduction. It, it's like a clone, but then the clone, you can edit it however you feel like without destroying the original. Okay, that so it's a descent, technically. Right. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. What cloning is 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 a is a copy without variation. Where reproduction Yeah. yeah copy this variation. Then our manual varying of the copy is makes it a reproduction instead of a
0: clone. Yes. Cool. And so there's some cool quotes here from different professors that I thought was ver- worth commenting on. Uh, Eric Dane from Bryce University recommends very challenges within a domain. And another researcher working with him said, having one foot outside of your world. And to continue on, to, to um, Spanish Nobel laureate Santiago Ramon y Cajal. To him who observes them from afar, it appears as though they are scattering and dissipating their energies while in reality, they're challenging and strengthening them. And to put it another way from Christopher Connolly, early in their careers, those who later made successful transitions had broader training and kept multiple career streams open, even as they per- pursued a primary specialty. They traveled on an eight lane highway rather than a single lane, one race street. So the point being is that you can put your efforts in like a whole bunch of different baskets while having one main track that you're kind of going on, but as long as you keep those interests burning, right? It's like having a whole bunch of little fires kind of kindling. And you do that long enough. At some point, one of those fires might find something and, you know, find just enough kindling and poof, it blows up a little bit. And you get another insight that you can either pull back into, or maybe it turns into your new thing to explore. But that could be tangentially related within your main domain somehow, right? Like if you're creative enough, You can pull these in, right? And kind of going back to the AI thing, the AI is not going to be able to do this level of creative thinking where you can have all these different things running in parallel that you can only, like, that only you as your unique interests in, in, like, a melting pot sort of way can pull from, right? Like, for the majority, at least for me, it's, like, in a daily way, I can talk about technology, nutrition, exercise science, you know, AI, High-level engineering problem solving and all these things, right? And it sounds like a lot of these things are totally widely separated. But there's you can pull all of them together through a through line of you know decision making frameworks and setting yourself up with with creative plans so that you can make them bite size in a way that all of a sudden it's like, wow, well, hold on, wait, you can't think about these in one type of framework rather than like, well, they're all way widely spread out that don't make any sense whatsoever. This is this is so my
1: disposition
0: like <laughs>
1: it, it like i would. so i was in a philosophy class michigan this is a, a political philosophy class we were actually talking about um mm-hmm. marx mm-hmm. and i kind of thought like we were i think with the whole general, this like the sway of the debate was, but in a certain way I thought, like, <laughs> Marx is the most capitalist of all of them. <laughs> and it, it isn't because he likes capitalism. It's because, it's because he can't see reality on the side of it, that it's like, he spent all his time thinking economically about capital, labor and all these things to the point where he specialized so narrowly that the obvious things about reality that are not governed by markets or should be looked at in a market fashion or, and so for Marx, there's no nature, there's no biology, there's no intrinsic value to a human being outside of their neighbor I mean, Right weird things
0: that just don't exist that seem self-evident or obvious to a person right like the, he thinks that gdp is their the ultimate outcome of a person right <laughs> gross domestic product <laughs> yeah and it's
1: straight as if like i don't even know like go what what use if i went to a funeral like for someone that I loved and I was the, the only person there. So I didn't get any benefits from like, you know, politically in some sense from being there. Right. What was the value to that. What labor was put into that. What, what, is, what is this other than, uh, the chance for me to grieve? and that, that might be, you might think of grief as a cynically as me gaining some value from that opportunity to grieve, as if I'm making a trade, right? That I'm trading that labor for, I'm reprieved from sadness or something. I, it, Okay, I, I'm not actually totally in disagreement with that. But what if I'm, but there's a simultaneous feeling of respecting that person, right? I can think of funerals I've been to, but There's, there's this. I'm not there just because I'm miserable and sad, but I'm there because they deserve for me to be there. Right. And what do they, what, what do you mean labor? What do you, What am I benefiting from this? Right? Th- this isn't about me in a certain anymore. This is about the fact that that person who's gone deserves for me to be there and show my respect for that. Yeah. And I just don't see any of that in Marx. And I wonder if I don't see any of that in Marx because Marx, what? He just didn't have a light. <laughs> That's why I mean, fixated on this problem. I mean, he didn't even have, he didn't know how to fucking handle money. Engels was the one that was <laughs> had his Fucking books. This dude was just a rich kid who couldn't make it on his fucking
0: own and they got bitter about it and now we have to deal with his goddamn problems <laughs> <laughs> yeah sounds <laughs> like very contemporary problems but we won't digress there i mean to me the reason I, I find this book so like necessary is that i feel that majority of people you know in our age group or in general is that we're we're squashed right we we're, we taken we start out as these three dimensional children right and we have all these interests in all these things that we want to do and explore but then all of a sudden we are told like nope you got to sit down pay attention in school you know do your homework you know do all the things check all the boxes and, and then as soon as you try to be interested in other areas you're told you get either you laughed at by your peers or ridiculed in some way because you're a nerd or you're whatever right like you, as soon as you show any sort of motivation to be outside of you know the laser lock focus you you look like an outsider and it's like why that doesn't make any sense and then the other part of this is is that once we hit a certain age you know early 20s post-college that kind of thing it, it there's like this assumption that people are supposed to have like their life figured out right like you're supposed to just be locked in and like this is your you know your your nine to five is going to be x y or z and that's all you're ever going to be so might as well stay in your lane, keep your nose to the grindstone and, you know, that kind of bullshit. And I just don't think it's true. I don't, I, it, especially in the 21st century, I just don't see that being possible because at the end of the day, what it, this is later on in the chapter, but what it takes to be exceptional, right? To be cutting edge in something, anything. It it takes you, just if you try to get a PhD, Joe, you know this, but if you try to take a PhD, it takes you 25 years, roughly. To get all the way there. And by the time you get to that cutting edge, you're 35, 40 years old. And I, this is not to down detract you. I'm just saying this is this is just not feasible for the vast majority of people. And so what is the fast track to do this? Well, in my opinion, it's taking all the things that you're interested in, combining them in a, in a unique and only unique way, right? You become an N of one because all you're the only person that could talk about these subjects in the way that you can. And so you do that, you start just making sense of it, however you see fit. And all of a sudden that's going to open a new doorways because then the subject matter experts can look at your ideas and be like, wait a minute, they might be on something. And then they can apply all their super cutting edge, high-end science and and push the domain forward that might not be like, because they're so entrenched in their niche, right? Like if you imagine this as like the Marianas Trench of something, right? Like you have, all these little canyons but then you have the expert that goes all the way down to the bottom because they're so deep they're not even looking above so then it, it all it takes is someone to do something unique and be like wait a minute i think we're looking the wrong way and there's examples in this book of things like that that solve problems that these subject matter experts overlook because they're like well that doesn't pertain to my field yeah i yes
1: and you don't know how to incorporate it in some sense of- is it, this is a very weird thing when you talk about cre- like lateral things. Yeah. The specialist in their individual field.
0: And there is literally a chapter called lateral thinking <laughs> in this book, as opposed to linear thinking. Yeah. linear yeah. It's very good for
1: specializing. It's very good for um moving what's already going it has momentum forward, right? But it's not very, very bad at changing direction. <laughs> lateral thinking as, so that's, that it's, that is linear thinking at its extreme where everything pushes forward in the wrong direction, collapses in and on itself and breaks. The extreme of lateral thinking is that everything spins off in a different direction. Nothing is connected to anything. And you <laughs> trip into schizophrenia, <laughs> forced to make connections using this phantasmal imagination to generate some coherence, right? can to go totally off the fucking rails, all over the place with lateral thinking, or you can go psychotic megalomania fixatedness on a single issue in a linear thinking. You need a marriage between the two. You right. need to be able to push in a general direction, to understand you're moving, you're oriented that way, but be flexible, be able to round obstacles, to flow around things. They are your path that you'd be like a river, like a stream going downhill that you know that you're going to settle into the basin, but how exactly you'll get to the basin will be determined in part by the obstacles that you're in your way at any given moment. And there's this concept of Wu Wei in China, I think it's a Taoist, um, probably. Translate it's something like inaction or non-action, uh, but it's not a perfect translation. Because like we would think of inaction as not doing anything, <laughs> as sort of sitting there and being subject to the whims of nature. But Wu Wei is not that. It's more like active inaction. I think the idea is that. You're in the present moment and things are occurring. And those things are outside of your control. Yeah. And we accept those things as be, as they are. You don't fight reality. You don't say, you don't deny it. You don't say that it should be another way. There's a tree in my path. It shouldn't be. Another. That is not how you react. You say. I am moving the stretch. There's a tree between me and where I'm heading. I accept that fact, and I'll move around it. Right? It's it's a it's a radical form of acceptance without submission to reality. That it's that it's. I am. Nature is. Nature will do as she wills. I will do as I will in response to nature without resentment. And there Blow around. Everything that I experience—that's one way, and that seems to me to be appropriate and appropriate
0: balance between linear and lateral Yeah, so I can give you an example or concretize some of this stuff um, from the chapter. So, if anyone's interested in the book, this is chapter nine. The actual title is "Lateral Thinking with Withered Technology." And this idea actually comes from the one of the original engineers for what would become the game company Nintendo. Um, and so this is one of, the, for me, this kind of like pushes all the buttons as someone who just loves everything about technology and gaming and people being innovative in a way that you would never expect. And so I'm just going to read a little bit. Um, I'm going to probably butcher his name because he's Japanese, but I'll do my best. But In 1965, Nintendo hired Gunpai Yoko. Yoko was a wide-ranging hobbyist, one of which is called a Manozukuri, which means, or which translates to thing-making. It it, it has a name in Japanese, which is amazing to me. Um, And one day, the president saw him playing with one of his inventions that became the company's first toy, the Ultra Hand. And if you go to the page on Feeding Curiosity, you can find links to this to see what this looks like. And afterward, the failure built this creative ph- philosophy, and which created the drive game, and that was advanced for his time, but it was fragile and complicated was expensive. Uh, Yokio recognized he was not a highly skilled engineer. He had no desire or skill to compete with the cutting-edge electronics at the time, and that's when he began thinking about lateral thinking with weather technology. And going further and skipping ahead a little bit, as an example, he... One of the favorite examples from Yoko is the mentioned of the Game Boy. By the standards of the time, the Game Boy was laughable, but not being on the cutting edge meant it was accessible to developers and then by customers by extension. He said, how can, So, how can we apply this philosophy more broadly? I gave. Um, I'm, I'm going to back up really quick since I skipped. But the, the idea here is that first, don't think of technology in a sense that we usually do as objects that we use, but relatively mature ideas. So you're accessible to the broadest number of people that we don't see it this way books are a technology and podcasts are a technology that I was thinking about what technology people are overlooking. As an example of innovation, young people see things differently than their teachers, managers, and parents. Our vantage point is different because we are immersed in a different pool of ideas and technology. The idea is to look at others that seem to discount and what it takes little effort to apply to your peer group. So the point being is kind of what we were tangenting in AI is that you can look at something that people like, well, that's just a toy, it's garbage, throw it away, right? What they did with the Game Boy is they combined a whole bunch of things that were mature at the time, so they were cheap to produce, they were comfortable with current developers to work with and make games fast, and it was easy enough for a mobile, so I, I summarize this, but at the time in Japan, a lot of people used the subway to travel to and from work. And before this, they had the Game & Watch. And so part of what made Game & Watch important was that it combined a watch. So business people were like, well, it's functional, so I can still use it. But it had the game built into it. So it kind of seeded this idea that you can still play games and be an adult at the same time. Fast forward to the Game Boy, which then explodes for someone like us in the 90s, who basically played Game Boy as one of our first game systems. Even though at the time it was a laughable screen, had no color, it had like no memory, and it was not really like all that good. It was like 16-bit, if that. I don't even remember what the screen was. But you basically had this perfect storm of technology being repurposed in a way that made it accessible. And it didn't ask a lot from the audience base, from both a development standpoint and from a user base, to be able to buy into it. And I think right now we're, we're, we're so much on that other end of the thinking spectrum of like, well, what's the cutting edge? What's like the next big thing? What I think in reality, this phone in our hands is literally a supercomputer. And so the question is, what can we do with it right now that we are overlooking because of how much excess computing power it's already on it with some creative thinking? Hmm. Because it's already with us all the time. How can we leverage it in a way that's not, you know the technology isn't asking from you. You can ask more of it.
1: Yeah. This is yes, absolutely. And like, if I can, only, it's almost like I need to add another. I'm not sure how different this is, but another constraint, which is that like, okay, you have this piece of technology, as you're saying, that it has a whole bunch of functionality, but it asks a lot from you, right? With notification, whether it's obnoxious, incessant, poking attention, which is the benefit of, of course, I mean, Facebook and Instagram, all these fucking places, who I, I have a whole drama, but additionally, it needs to be like an extension. The question is not, what are human propensi- propensities that we can extort for profit. That's wrong. Yeah. That's speciation, that's the beginning of speciation, competition between us and the digital mm-hmm. world. The question is, how can we leverage these things to expand our ability for connection? So what I would really okay. like to for example, is dating apps not looking at how to draw Attention for people, but rather how, look at the data, what creates a long-lasting mirror? What, what is it that predicts this? Can we incorporate that into the stadium yet? This is what I would like to see. And is it going to, like how, as a business person, how, how is it that you play that you might actually be able to have a app like this and make profit. Well, it's raised price. You think that people won't pay
0: a fuck time to find the one? <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I think what in like the early, probably like late 20, like 2010-ish, right, when all these apps things kind of started becoming big, we, the idea of like, well, it's a free service, right, like this, it no cost to sign up, I think that was a, a good idea when you had startups blowing up to show that, look, we have this giant community, when in reality, a community does not mean a large number of people on your platform. What I think is a better metric is something along the lines of like activity, and i mean personally discord something like a discord is way more beneficial as a part of like um proving an actual use case to how to drive personal connection because it it makes the friction right and discord is kind of unique in the sense that it was a gaming thing initially but now it's expanding more broadly into other domains because of just how good it is and what it does and so i think instead of looking at these things as like oh well we need to just get always like always free access. I think some of this, like having an exclusive quote-unquote walled garden that you can curate people that are in it or have better ways of having, like c- grouping people with like your interests, right? Can you imagine, uh, kind of pulling this back to the dating app world, like can you imagine where you have like a dating app that you fill out like some sort of questionnaire or some sort of thing it learns about you. Maybe it connects to the social media you already have. Or maybe it logs it, like you give it access to look at your, um, like Netflix profile or something like that, where it learns something about you that's tangible that says, hey, it seems like you're X kind of person, right? You kind of can leverage the personal data set that you already exist as who you are on the internet in some way. And then it's like, well, here's this whole group of people that seem like they might like the same things you do. Because having shared deep interests is really important for long-term health relationships, both significant and just friends, right? Like we all know that intuitively. This is one of these things you can totally expand
1: on. So it's like, okay. You put in a whole bunch of interests. Long day. <laughs> <I> guess, And <laughs> um, either your search, this would scare me a little, but, uh, your search tendencies, or so on. But you can have them take a Big Five personality test. You can have them take uh, tests that gauge their attachment style. Mm. A whole cacophony of different psychological tests, see the degree of effect they have, play out with them, look for best matches, and find a pool in a hundred mile area
0: yep where it works like okay this i think that's so much better because part of it to me like i when i think about this like an engineer it's i've always i've thought about this lately especially it's it's what are the incentives right because if you look at these platforms their incentive to actually match people effectively for long-term healthy relationships is actually almost zero because what they would rather you do Is you find a whole bunch of partners as often as possible, and then you come back for your next dopamine hit. Yes, and 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 so because that is the incentive their platform does because if it's free, that means they're effectively as it's more and more effective, their bottom line goes like this because their possible growth trajectory is only down unless they can get more and more people onto their platform. This this free game is a.
1: Fucking bad strategy for humanity. Here's a bad because things aren't free.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tenure
1: to be free for people that want to bang. And if all they want to do is a cheap sex, buy. But you need a separate balancing act here. Yeah. <laughs> that designed for people that want to be in a long-term relationship want to find someone to settle down for, right? This is a natural human inclination, It is as real as any sexual desire. It's a more real in that it allows for the generations of people who have sexual desires to emerge, right? It's, It's this, in some sense, sexual desire predicated on the perpetuation of a species that has sexual desire. And the thing that's perpetuating the sexual desire is, is, is literally mean it so how about right like settle down allow people to
0: do that (laughs) actually do that actually do what the technology was supposed to help us do right (laughs) um i yeah
1: right i think that i mean this is evident facebook is that these motherfuckers just read the addiction literature they didn't give a shit about human connection they gave a shit about was just bleeding you through your eyes of all your attention so that they can just, they can just <laughs> rip it, which was so to get to advertising company. Just, oh, give me a fucking another hit of their attention. These sick bucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, oh, <fuck laughs> Facebook. I know. I, I mean, honestly, I think we've brought up social media enough. I think we should honestly do a, a future podcast on the social dilemma, broadly speaking, and just kind of highlight some of that stuff because I think it's worth re re um reiterating or readdressing just given that some of this kind of seemed to be pushed to a back burner since the pandemic and things like that. So I think it's worth you know bringing back front and center because of just, you know, I personally don't think meta is a good idea or having Facebook control something like the metaverse. I it's should say. Nightmare.
1: You think these people are gonna handle that responsibly <laughs> get the
0: blunt out. They can't. And, need they it kind of right, and I think so. Kind of rolling this into a, in a positive pivot, like the, the, what you could call this. Some of this stuff is is like gamification of of apps and and technology. So things that make you want to do more of it, right? And you see this rampant in video games. How like uh, uh, video games as a service are are designed, basically doing daily rewards or daily activities so that you're like, well, I got to log in today because I got to, you know, I got to get my next little bump, right? It's it's the same little triggers that drug addicts do and or alcoholics do. It's it's that, but just, you know, like just under the radar a little bit more, right? No. It's not in the like, how fucking sick do you have to be me to go and
1: try to figure out, like if you've ever seen someone who's addicted like I have to hero with? right, and how horrible that is, and what that turns them into, how unbelievably destructive that is in their life, and you go, hmm, how can I recapitulate that, how can I try that again, how many people can I turn into heroin addicts, if, and they did that, Facebook read the addiction literature and thought. Hmm, that seems like a good idea. Maybe yeah. get people addicted, and then they yeah. wonder. I'm sure they don't, because they're emotionless freaks. Wonder, oh, what are the consequences for humans? How shocked we are that people are acting like heroin addicts. That they're behaving in crazy and neurotic ways. Yeah. No okay.
0: shit, you sick son of a bitch. Fuck. We're playing, we're, we're doing science experiments on population level people, populations that didn't choose to be a part of these experiments, right? Um, no. and, and, and to kind of push this in the direction of like, okay, so how do we change, right? Like instead of just pointing out negatives and not giving any concrete examples of what a good thing looks like, I'm going to use Duolingo, the language learning app, as a positive aspect of how to do things right. And so if you read this book and you look at an app like Duolingo, and I should probably do like a separate talk on this because I think it captures a lot of the learning literature, like within psychology, psychology of learning and also within like that first chapter with the wicked versus um, uh, cl- uh, nice learning environments, you realize that you can structure things such that it gives you all of the proper feedback without the, addictive qualities and so what you can do with like duolingo it does a whole bunch of things right now they have like these daily challenges and so it's like spend 10 minutes learning a day or earn 20 experience which is like two lessons so depending on how fast you are you can do that in five minutes if less if not less if you're you know just on top of it or doing an easy lesson um or you can do like oh do like a legendary exercise which is like a harder where you have to memorize the actual words and stuff. But all of this, again, what does it mean? You're spending more time in the app, but what is the goal? To learn a language. It's all in service to learn the language. Also, by the way, what they have now is, so say you're working a language for a long period of time. What it's doing as you get things wrong, not only at the very end of your, le- your lesson, do you revisit the ones you got wrong? If you, you also can go back like the next day, And just do a section of the only things you got wrong. So you can go back and do what's called active error correction, which is this is one of the things that they talk about in learning literature. So like in musicians, what you can see when people are getting really good at something or when they're like kind of hitting that like neurological sweet spot of skill building is you do active error correction. So say you're practicing a new, new song. As soon as you hit an error, you stop, redo it until you get that error right and you keep you do this like recursion basically where you just keep going back and forth to the air and what this ends up doing is this is helping in your brain this is not from uh, range but this is from the talent code this is basically improving your myelin sheets, which you can think of as insulators on your neurons so that over time you're making sure those neural connections are are basically not losing anything over time And so part of reading both of these books, um, you, you basically have this idea that being talented or being skilled at something isn't just being like, well, I'm just, I just get this stuff. No, what it actually is, is being able to recognize feedback and also not being so turned off by having, like, getting things wrong, right? Like, in school, most of us are trained, well, you have to be a straight A student and you have to be perfect. No, I think that's the exact wrong thing you should be teaching people to do. What you should be teaching their people to do is when they get things wrong you don't say oh i guess you're not cut out for this you're not good at math or you're not good at whatever instead what you should be doing is be like okay let's just you you did this section really really well but let's look at these four problems that you got wrong and i'm going to help you and you ask me questions like what did you what would you think you should do here and then i'm going to guide you through and help you understand why your thinking in this specific example was wrong right like For me, I'm learning German. I've spent like almost three years doing German now because part of it for me is I want to suck at something every day. And so one of that reason is using skill building within a language so that my brain isn't getting so comfortable that I'm just like, well, I'm just kicking ass in every domain I'm in because I can go and do a lingo right now and find a lesson I'm going to suck at. (laughs) And the point being is that you're basically training yourself to be able to take on problems that you're not like, you're just at the edge of your... your comfort zone, but like not quite. So you'll get like, you know, 70% right. And that's like the sweet spot where so you're and the point is being comfortable right at your edge of skill. Yeah. And you do yeah. that long enough and your skill goes, you know, you just keep pushing that forward, right? Until you know, you're 50 and you're at the top of the mountain. Or that's well very, the mountain just gets that is um that is, <laughs> Uh
1: that, there's this thing, there's Psychologist uh, like uh-huh. Vygotsky, uh, one in uh, Russia, this so idea of the zone of proximal development, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Goldilocks zone. So you have some amount of information though. Know, then you have a, some amount of information that you don't know, and if the new or this information that's incoming to you is too close to what you know, it's boring. It might be new, yeah. but it's boring. Who cares? If it's too far outside of what you know, then it's exhausting. In fact, you don't even know how to get your hands around it. It's just like, what the shit am I looking at? But there's this golden thing, this little intermediary place around that that you can find yourself in where it's more than what is boring, less than what's daunting. Yeah can, if you can keep yourself there and stay in the zone, then you can keep moving forward. And it sounds like what you're describing, with Duolingo,
0: that they're trying to get you there. Into the z- yes. And, and they've even added some new features lately. So say you're kicking ass on some of the earlier lessons, like you're getting everything right. It's like, Hey, you're, it'll even tell you this now. It's like, Hey, you're kicking ass. You're doing really well. Do you want to just skip to the next levels? Cause like every lesson has like five levels. Of mastery on it. So it starts out super simple and then it works its way up to more and more complete or harder things where you have to like memorize either the word itself. So you can't like tap it and see like the translation. You just have to hear the word or read the word and then be able to translate it. And so that they basically can have like a scaling slider to making things more difficult or less difficult based on who you are or wherever you're at within the specific lesson that you're doing. And they're actually. Um, There's a podcast you can listen to. I believe it's Tim Ferriss who uh, interviewed the CEO of of Duolingo who started the company. And what they want to do, it's not there yet, but they're they're aiming to do this, is basically if Duolingo was pseudo-perfect, basically you could open up your Duolingo app and you could tell someone, hey, I'm some unified scale proficient in whatever language you're learning. And what that would mean to someone if you told them that is like oh i'm you know language fluent or written fluent or you know what i mean like you just have a better idea of being able to tell someone just how good you are at a specific language because currently there's really it's not like that quantifiable yet and they're trying to aim for that because part of this is instead of using technology to treat you know to auto translate technology which should we should go there to some degree but i think i still think there's a huge psychological and an intellectual benefit for people to be multilingual i think there are studies about multilingual people being able to more effectively communicate ideas and things like that because personally so this is kind of a tangent that i wasn't expecting to go to but in my opinion language learning helps you understand how other people think because language is the basis of understanding the framework the mental model of cultures because their culture their language rose from those specific cultures so you can understand deeply how those people formulate their ideas by how they talk either written or spoken. Mm. I mean, and so if you and so if you just try to like tra- auto translate stuff like I'm sure I mean me and you Joe we watch anime, right? And there's a reason why when you watch the English English dubbed anime doesn't capture the same essence as the original Japanese with English subtitles. Because something is lost in translation, even though it's close sometimes, but for the most part, it doesn't capture the essence. Yeah, people's personalities will shift
1: when they change languages because they're is embodying the culture. Right, it's like a great way, way to really understand from a procedural level, like yeah, what is that, that culture is about. Right, it's like looking from the outside in. It's a way of embedding yourself in it, and then it. Yeah, sort of emerging out
0: of it with a new understanding. Respect. One of my, one of my tests for myself is going forward. I can kind of do this already, but there's some a lot of actual uh, international films on on Netflix now. Um, one of them in German is called Dark, and it's kind of like a psychological thriller that people have said is really good. On Dark for one moment,
1: I gonna not to that.
0: Okay, Dark do about So that's
1: on oh, Netflix. Is,
0: yeah, it's on Netflix. I think there's like three or four seasons, but this kind of is a long way of saying like this kind of wraps up everything we've been talking about, which is how do you take interest in skills that make you a more three-dimensional person in your life? Because the point of all of this exploration is to say that you're not just one thing. You aren't just whatever your career you think you're going to have. In any day at any given time and for the vast majority of us we're not going to just be a doctor a lawyer a whatever for 40 years anymore that's just not the reality and I, that was a reality that worked when it did but the reality now is that you're going to wear a lot of different hats over your lifetime and you're just going to have different interests over your lifetime your role and who you are and who you become you're just going to change your focus and that's totally normal and to to say that well where's that thing that's going to hit me and i'm just going to feel like I was meant to do this. Well, congratulations. It's the thing that you spend the most time doing or thinking about. And you just have to throw a lot of shit at the wall to get there. Hmm. And what dark represents, at least in this skill building domain with language learning and, and changing your thinking about things is, okay, you can learn an app and you can pretend like you're going through the motions and you're not sure if you're actually learning something. Well, how can you do this without having someone to actually speak that language with? Well, I'm learning German. And Dark is spoken in German as its native, uh, what it was filmed in. And so what you can do is you can turn on Dark, put English subtitles on if you want, but just see how much of that you're actually picking up. Because what I've noticed over time as I've done this, I'm like, wait, I can't, I'm translating this in real time. It's freaking spooky because you're like, what? it's like something sci-fi where it's like, I've installed a decoder in my brain To be able to understand a new language that you're just like, wait a minute, how did I get here? Right. Because you don't, it's like you feel the process of learning a new language, right? It's the same thing to say, like you're not like learning how to do math or learning how to do physics or any pick anything that you learn in school. You don't feel the changes specifically. But what you do notice is that at some point you start from the beginning of class, and by the time the semester ends, you somehow magically acquire some sort of skill in being able to solve problems in the way that the teacher has has been able to lay them out to you but then from there it doesn't end what where where the the magic happens in my opinion is how do you take those structured problems and the tool sets you have to solve those structured problems and apply them to the real world and that is where in my opinion the the school system has failed because the school system doesn't help you. It d- it gives you some tool set, but it doesn't tell you how to translate that tool set to the modern world in a real tangible way that empowers the individual to feel like they can tackle problems they haven't faced in the real world.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's the whole reason I'm trying to do this. <laughs> to give people a breadcrumb trail in which to figure out, like, hey, here's what I'm learning. And wait, I can actually apply this. Because you can go to the gym and you can you know, do hard things and lift bigger weights. But what does that do? Well, actually, what that's teaching you how to do is be more resilient and be able to say, wait, I can actually incrementally increase the challenge of myself on myself physically such that when I'm going into a mental situation that's more difficult, I realize that I'm more resilient to be able to have those hard discussions with my boss or have a a heated discussion with my partner or whatever it happens to be. Because now I realize that I have more mental fortitude than I did before that would have set me off in the past things like that. It's, and it's like i said this point of being is like the reason i'm jumping over examples is because there's this is all you know cross-functional it's not just well because you lift a heavy weight you're going to be savant or whatever no it, what the point is if you think about this deeply in your life you can figure out how to extract little nuggets of wisdom in which that you can be a more functional human being in your life however that looks like for you it's really cool and, and just no supplements needed. <laughs> no <laughs> supplements needed or 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 money to spend on companies trying to give you a silver bullet. <laughs> I hardly know what to say. That was such a nice way to I get really heated on this topic, as you can tell. <laughs> I I spent a lot of time with this book and um I think it shows I, I basically eight breath and slept with it it came with me everywhere as i dissected every page of this to try and give people the biggest best nuggets of it which means that i'm probably outside of the author i'm probably one of the best people who knows the material of this book
1: this, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> i this was released over 2021 it was kind of like the pandemic project i forced myself to do um it probably took me three to six months to to kind of reread the book and then slowly parse everything down to try and basically it took like a two hundred and something page book to forty pages, is what I summarized it. But the point of it, so like if you actually go to the page on the website and things like that, the point isn't that I'm like compressing this down to a Spark Notes thing if you're a kid from the nineties. The point is that I am not only providing High points the author provided as my input or my tastes, but also like, hey, the, he interviewed this researcher with this specific idea who happened to also write a book on that idea. And if you really like that idea, maybe you want to go read that book instead. Or, yes. hey, this guy who talked about this idea, he's an author, but he also did a TED talk that's only 20 minutes long. And maybe all you need is that TED talk to gain something of this. And so instead of being locked by the domain of printed word, or audiobook. now we can leverage the power of the internet to be able to say wait all of this is connected and we can connect the tissue right we can add connective tissue like neurons in a brain using text documents to allow people to go and double click as their curiosity tongue-in-cheek intended there allow foul wants them to go right like the point is i'm not trying to say this is how you do it the point being is This is where it starts. This is how you figure out what you're interested in. You just keep clicking on the things that you're interested in until all of a sudden, you're like, wait, how did I get here? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: This is, okay, so this is the blueprint you create. Yes. Available on feedingcuriosity.com and it behaves like a network Series of nodes, information, hyperlinks you can dive deeper into that uh, springs from this book. Yep. and the book is Range by David Epstein. David Epstein.
0: <laughs> so we basically covered like two and a half chapters. <laughs> so there's 12. <laughs> huh? You went through every chapter? No. Related to of, you just distilled how much the whole book. I I did the whole book chapter by chapter, so you can find Ooh. starting from chapter one to chapter twelve. You can you can find all of it. Like I said, it was a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds it, <laughs> yeah. it, It's basically imagine a book report, but on steroids, but also yeah. functional. Other books. The plan is to keep doing this with other books you know having a day job it's hard to parse books um but having these conversations is kicking my ass to do it so i'm actually in process of starting the second book right now which i spoiler note i I interjected into this conversation which is the talent code um i'm already like two chapters into that one so that one's gonna be the idea so i have a I'm, I'm giving insider baseball, but if you're live streaming this or listening to this on the podcast, you care enough to, to, to want to understand some of this stuff. And basically I have a, a trifecta of ideas, um, that I'm working on to kind of, it'll be like one mega blueprint when I'm done is like a, a cohesive triangle, so to speak. Um, where you had range, which is kind of like skill building in the world. Like, why do we need to be broadly skilled? Right, Like, why should we try to be as broad as we possibly can to be able to pick and choose and have the basically largest toolbox available to us to solve as many complicated problems as we can in our lifetime? The next one, which is the talent code, is going to be a tackling, okay, so if we need to be broad and we need to be skilled, well, how does that fucking work? So that's what talent code is going to be. And then the third one is going to be, how do we scale that? Um, Or what is the scaling of that? And so, you know, scaling talent at scale, I guess, is another way to do it. If we're using jargonies, um, are you getting words? Yeah. I, that's, what I, yeah. that's, that's, that's what I was thinking. Uh, and then I, I I have more books that I, I have in mind to try and pull different ideas from that, you know, we'll see when we get there. I, I what I really need to do is just kind of have like a writing day that I need to just do this, but, you I'm sure you get this show, but if you've ever tried to write things, you just fucking hate every second it is that you're writing something until you hit a roll in a groove. What's <laughs> up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Alcohol, the ultimate lubricant. Um, it, it helps that I'm. <laughs> it helps that I'm doing like the other part of this, and I think we could actually do. I keep giving myself ideas on podcasts to do at this point because Jesus fucking Christ. But, um, I wish I had one of my books on me that I've basically flagged out, but I have an entire process now that I do to make this easier on myself going forward, which I've been doing for a while. It's just, I just realized that I can apply this to make flueprints and break things down for people. But basically I have a highlighter with me at all times. So I'm highlighting quotes and chapters and people, um, for the podcasts or for the things I'll write so that I can easily reference them. Uh, this is a double-edged sword because the idea is that I'd love to interview any of these scientists mentioned in books because these guys don't really get much screen time for like airing out their ideas other than when you know art or authors are trying to, you know, package it into a book idea they have, right? So the point is that going down the line, we can basically influence science and science discovery such that we can say, hey, look, we have people that are interested in your specific area of research and we can just keep going down these people and leverage their you know like i said they're the deep guys right (laughs) they're the guys at the bottom of the ocean digging for us and we need to get we need to pull them to the surface for an hour to be able to you know what have you found what's the little gem that what is the gem that you can tell us and then you can let them go back down to the deep ocean so that we can continue to, you know, see what we can pull from what they're learning. There- it's like Ted talk. It's like Ted talks, but more open and just for the curiosity to push people forward, whatever that looks like. Right. Because it's not about finding the ultimate answer. It's about finding what's functional.
1: This reminds me of, you know, in uh, <laughs> it's a weird leap, but. Uh. Mario Kart, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you're driving every so often on the road, there are these things that are just sort from of launch fans that just bang shooting forward way faster. Yeah, it's like I'm on the avenue to some kind of learning. This is a way of launching myself in that general direction. Right. How this strikes me is that it isn't a replacement. Of these things. It's a way of just like it's a portal. Bang, shoot, yeah.
0: Stargate. It's an accelerator. Because the like the point is, right? Like just because someone is is an influential or successful researcher or scientist or CEO or whatever you name it, right? Whatever prestigious role that they figured out something. The point being is that there's a little nugget in what they're specialized in that we can wrap into our lives such that we don't have to go and reinvent the wheel to have a gain of function. I I shouldn't say gain of function, but (laughs) there's some negative connotations there with the pandemic, but regardless. (laughs) But like, there's, there's like a leading, you know, instead of just existing at your normal rate, because, you know, if you're just you and you're just absorbing information in a book or whatever, it's hard to kind of direct focus and be like, well, what should I be focusing on? Instead, what you can do is you can turn to the people that you feel you know some sort of ideological or kinship toward in this idea of living better, and by doing so, you can leverage their twenty years of research and catapult yourself. Because then, what will happen is that person might get a hold of that twenty-something-year-old. Right? Say you're you're this researcher who's done you know skill-building research for twenty years and this person happens to stumble across your ideas and starts applying them. How far would you be had they been your age, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, I wish I would have been your age when I found this idea. Like how many times you've ever heard that?
1: (laughs) Very funny because I was just talking about this in a meeting today with my masters through rat people. And we were talking about, we were talking about statistics and how I'm very happy that SPSS and R and all these step platforms exist, uh, it, maybe it's good for me to learn, it is good for me to learn all the formulas and what things are doing and understand that, at a conceptual level, but I am fucking thrilled that I don't have to memorize all the formulas, know the math to such a degree right. that I could just do it by hand. It's like, I am, because at a certain point, I would just be a statistician. And right. the fact that somebody came before me is such a benefit because it increases the efficiency of the entire research endeavor by providing to generate. Yeah, right. That's cool. So I have um, yeah. So I have a I have a question for you. So I mm-hmm. um multiple questions. You're talking about range. This is a book that struck you as interesting. Why did you it struck you as interesting? And has it, can you provide something that's kind of concrete or demonstrable as to why this is, if this
0: has benefited you in some particular ways? So the first part of that question is I've always felt uh, as someone like a generalist. Um, I never wanted to be one category in, in any sense, even I've always kind of had this feeling since I was really little. I don't really know why, but I just, I just always didn't want to just pick one thing because I didn't want to close doors in a weird sense. Um, and actually part of the reason I chose engineering in the way that I did was that I had a whole bunch of ideas that I co- thought I could be good at, like scientist broadly. Um, but, out of all of them that I could have chosen, like I think I thought like archaeologists um I didn't really think physics was one for me because I just didn't have like the the drive to do high level math. I just wasn't enamored like that. I've always been really drawn to functional like how do how do you take science and then take science that makes something real and practical in life, and so something like range for me speaks to me because it's it kind of touches at all of the aspects of like, how do you build a framework to live better? And so I kind of, and I kind of stumbled on this myself because of my interests in, in uh, exercise science and physiology, nutrition, you know, the longevity science and things like that. I'd already kind of stumbled on this unique secret sauce that I developed on my own because no one would have ever explained it to me because. I had always thought that working out was a meathead thing early on, you know, it was like, just pick up a big weight and put it down. And well, I guess you're a stronger kid. Uh, and, and yeah, and for, and for a reference, for people who don't know, I'm like, even in high school, I was like five, two freshman year, 110 pounds. And here I am at 29, I'm five, six, 160 pounds. So like, there's no hope for me to ever be a star athlete with that type of body. And so what I did instead is I took engineering, an engineering's approach to weightlifting. I was like, well, I like robotics and guess what? My body is, is, is a really thick, close proximate to biomechanics and robots. So I'm going to start treating myself like a science experiment. I'm going to learn how to do different lifts and think about it in a way where it's like, okay, if I'm going to do a bicep curl what's going on here as like a lever, right? Because you can look at there as a fulcrum and you could start doing that. But then the best part is that over time, if you track yourself well enough, like you don't even have to write this in a book, but you can have a good idea. You start at 10 pounds. Two weeks later, you're at 15 pounds, right? And like, you can do all these like natural science, like treating your body like like it's a lab and you can do all this stuff and you get real tangible feedback. Like we started this thing with, And you can start selecting for variables. And then as you get better and better at understanding your body, you can start realizing that you can track yourself in other ways such that you're can be instead of just throwing things at the wall and being like, well, I'm studying, I'm doing my homework, I'm I'm figuring it out. Like you can actually create frameworks in which that are tailored to your specific way that works for you. And it doesn't mean it has to work for everyone else because it doesn't matter. Because if the outcome means you're you're better, then you're winning. Like, you don't have to measure your success to other people because, like, the other thing that I I think is really important here is, like, it's easy to look at someone who's done a thing for a very long time and be like, well, I'll never be like that jacked guy in the corner who's 280, you know, squatting three, four plates. But the point being is early on, I, I checked my ego at the door and said, that guy's day one was five plus years ago and that's the reality of a lot of these things like you can look at a guy who's really well built in a bodybuilder and say well his day one was five years ago or whatever the the reality is that a lot of these scientists right exactly but like you, the reality being is that a lot of these scientists at the cutting edge or whatever domain their day one was 10 years ago or more and so the point is is that if you're really that interested and really that bought in, you have to just start today and just keep going because it's it's, it's over the long term that you'll realize just how far you can come because you just got to throw yourself and say, well, this is what I'm doing. And even if it sucks, even if you hate it, because I mean, if you're growing at all, of course, you're going to hate the thing you did before, even a year ago. I mean, I, there's podcasts I listen to today that I still hate. Or don't enjoy yeah. as much as I did before. This is such <laughs> I
1: love this. Because there's a certain... You hear people that are like... No regrets. <laughs> if you say no regrets, you haven't grown up. Because if like, you're not embarrassed by something in your past... <laughs> that's because you haven't matured enough to realize... Think is embarrassing <laughs> right you should be embarrassed half of growing up is realizing you're an idiot <laughs> <And> make that <laughs> growing up That's sucks right it this this idea that like you can live a life free of regrets why would you want to yeah why would you want to
0: i think too for me it's like there's all this like growth hacking, pseudo entrepreneurial bullshit that goes around now, and I, I kind of hate the idea of hacks. Like, like really this bullshit. one hack will change your life. I think there's no substitute for doing work. Like, you have like if you want to get stronger and you want to like run a mile faster. Well, guess what? You're gonna have to do a lot of running. Uh, I'm sorry. There's no secret to, to do that unless you want to do roids. But I'm sorry, that's not a good idea. If you really care about your longevity or your overall quality of health, doing roids to shortcut your way to To doing anything and you could substitute roids for whatever you want whatever domain that would be cheating um because it's like for me it's like okay if you want to get better at something try to make tomorrow or today rather a win and if you do just one percent of what you hope to do like be one percent better today you do that every day right like what happens in a year because, I'm, I swear to god, you'll be, you'll be better than you were if you did nothing, promise. <laughs> right? Like, if you write one, one uh, if for writers out there, it's like, some of the pithy things, it's like, one, write one shitty page a day. Just do one shitty page. It could be double-spaced if, if you need it to be, double. you know, if you, if you don't think you can write one single-paced word, fine. Right? Change the font <laughs> size to whatever you think is necessary, but write one shitty page. And you do that every day for a year. What happens? Promise you, you might have a book by the end of that year. It might be a shitty book, but it's a start. Doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. It's sh- but you did something you wouldn't have done otherwise. The same thing is true for starting a new diet. This is something that I learned so sincerely,
1: so um, clearly from weightlifting. You're talking about being a generalist and that you can take things that seem just purely physical. And that they apply, in fact, to intellectual endeavors. One, a bunch of the Stoics were like wrestlers and athletes, right? And that they, Mm -hmm. the metaphors they use, it's like that. But, like, I learned a ton from weightlifting. I learned the idea of the zone of proximal development from weightlifting because the place where you're making growth isn't in the three, four sets where you're doing okay, or reps where you're okay, it's in those next two where you're struggling and you are barely finishing it, where you're barely making it over the line, right? That's the place where you do it. And it isn't either the place where you go up and then you meet fit, right? It's right there, right in the, the misery. And. If you yeah. can understand that the, um, suffering, not pain, right? Is it injurious, right? You In- are injurious. Is that a word? Uh, injured, this kind of injury invoking pain. Yeah. That's not it. It's that I'm nailing it. I'm the right form. I have the right everything. And I, uh, feel you exactly where I meant to feel it and this is every uncomfortable. Yep. And you continue. And so one of the coolest things that I've noticed probably I don't know when this seven, but as I've kind gotten of older, that the there's a can focus on the pain and if, if you reject it. If you reject the pain, we'll get it. Right? And you should like dissociate, space out. You're just trying to like me and trying to get, get through the misery. That it doesn't, you can't, it doesn't go as far. Yeah. Will work as well. And then what I found is that the pain itself will even dissipate. If I let it tell me what it wants to tell me, that I just accept the pain, and say, "Okay, yes, I see that you're in pain. I would, l- oh, I would like to continue. We are going to keep moving. There's three more left. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and that's been huge. It's so so. Maybe the solution to." stagnation to this kind of uh, the way to grow best is to
0: be conscious so there's two two ideas i can pull from here and they actually triggered both they're both from books um but the zone of proximal development sounds like to me is is the idea of flow right it's like where you're kind of just in the pocket right where time seems to go away and you're just kind of woo you're just you're just in it right and like as soon as you recognize that you're in flow then it's over right <laughs> but that's kind of like with that flow feeling and there's a book on this subject called stealing fire highly highly recommend it um so that'll probably now that i'm thinking about it that might be the chart tri- the, tri- the other trifecta book um because I, re- re- I re-remembered it as you were talking <laughs> um but that one is really really beneficial if you're if you're really trying to fire on all cylinders li- with combining all these ideas with between skill building and and being broad and and just you know as a jocko jocko would say getting after it in life um <laughs> i think that's really important and then the other book that I was thinking of that's more recent for me, which is The Comfort Crisis. And the idea for me, like the, the highest level I can give you without going into detail, because I'll tangent forever on that one too, um, is being comfortable with un- uncomfortable, right? Like, And this comes from another idea within the ultra-running community. Uh, I had him on the podcast before. His name is Alec Eichert. And what he said, and this is very common within the ultra community, so ultra is for people who run over a marathon's distance in a single period so it could be 24 hours it could be less but it's it's basically anything over marathon distance you run that as fast as you can um <laughs> they're insane people uh i respect the hell out of them though and it just shows the tenacity and the um the levels of a human endurance the human body can take but also the mind and what he says is that the the point of it is is you get comfortable in the pain cave you get in the pain cave and you just and you just start, you know, you make murals on the wall while you're in your pain cave and you just keep running and you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you're just you're just in your pain cave and you just go. And it sounds insane unless you've been there. Like, try running a half marathon and you'll find real quickly that your legs hurt, your quads are on fire, your calves are on fire, and uh yeah, you're just gonna be on it. you're just gonna hate a lot of it and you're just gonna have to Deal with it, however <laughs> however that looks like for you. And um, for a lot of people, I'm not saying you should, ne- if you've never run before, you, you shouldn't do that because you're going to break because your mind is not ready for it. But what you can do is you slowly incre- increment your way up to being able to do something like that. And you basically build, you know, to use an engineering term, your pain cave is, is a battery. It, and you slowly improve the, the capacity of your battery as you get more and more trained mentally and physically to take on that level of strain and again this is an analogy that applies to any and all domains the more you deal with the uncomfortable things you don't know how to do the more proficient you get at doing those things
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) makes sense to me
0: yeah, I, I knew it would make sense to you. I just there's all these analogies that pop into my head as you're talking, and I'm like, wait, I've I've seen this in a different way before. See, I'm doing it. I'm doing the lateral thinking in real time. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, we're uh an hour and almost forty minutes already. We we went over our hour. <laughs> yes,
1: we <it> did. <is. laughs>
0: we we hit a groove and kept going. I would love to keep going, but I have to get ready for bed because the hammer on Michigan time right now. <laughs> you got a whole conference. Yes. I got to be on for another full day. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> either way, this was uh way more energizing though, in any sense.
1: Good. All right, everybody. We will catch you all in the next one.